following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Father, we know that death is a part of life and that, Lord, because of sin, death has entered the world. And Father, we thank you that you did not leave us to perish, but sent your Son so that we might not experience the second death, but eternal life. And thank you, Lord, that Dorothy and Oscar, that their testimony of their faith in the Lord Jesus, and that now, Lord, they no longer are enduring these earthly tents, but are with the Savior. And we pray, Lord, for their families. I pray for Angela and Vicki and Eric that just really loved... They loved Oscar. I pray, Lord, you would comfort and encourage them or be a refuge for them. And I pray as well for Bob and Carol and that, God, you would also comfort them, the loss of Bob's mom. We thank you, Lord, that you give us comfort that by your grace we can, even in the midst of great trials, Lord, have that comfort that only comes from you. And Thank you for your word. Open our eyes to understand and Apply it, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, indeed, there are many sad songs in the world, but there's one that, for me, stands out as among the the saddest. And actually, it was not intended to be a sad song when it was written. Far from it. It was written to be a song of celebration, at least by those who sang it. And before I came to Christ, I enjoyed it too, but not anymore. I heard this song playing not long ago. I I don't remember where I was at, but I stopped and I listened to it. And I listened not because I was reliving the old days. Uh, I I listened to it because of the words that were being sung. And it stirred in my heart great sorrow. For this is what the song said. Living easy, living free. Season ticket on a one-way ride. Asking nothing, leave me be. Taking everything in my stride. Don't need reason, don't need rhyme, ain't nothing I'd rather do. Going down, party time. My friends are going to be there too. I'm on the highway to hell. The highway to hell. No stop signs, no speed limit. Nothing's going to slow me down. Like a wheel, going to spin it. Nobody's going to mess me around. Hey, Satan, paid my dues, playing in a rocking band. Hey, Mama, look at me. I'm on my way to the promised land. I'm on the highway to hell, the highway to hell. That song was released uh, 35 years ago by the Australian rock band ACDC, and it became a classic. And actually, I debated whether or not to read the lyrics, because uh, for some of you, that tune may now be rattling around in your head, and I apologize for that. If it is, I'm sorry. But, But I read these lyrics because of the man who was singing them. For it was just a year after Highway to Hell was released that lead singer Bon Scott drank so much alcohol one night that he passed out in the back seat of a car and he died from choking on his own vomit. He was so drunk he could not wake up. And so whenever I hear that song, I don't hear the guitar, I don't hear the drums, I don't hear the bass. I hear Bon Scott. I hear Bon Scott singing it and and celebrating his journey to hell. I think often about him in the back of that car. Perhaps even the song was echoing in his mind that he had done a concert just uh, that very night. And I, I can't get the image out of my head that as he passed out onto the back seat, closed his eyes, and then opened them, how shocked he must have been to find the true horrors of a place that he sang about so gleefully. So this song grieves me. And it grieves me not just because of Bon Scott. It grieves me because there are many who hold to his same sort of attitude about hell. They don't realize what hell really is. They don't believe in it to their own peril. Many Christians even make light of it. They dismiss it. But it is imperative that we know what God says about hell because it is real. 
And so this morning, I want to pick up where we left off last week on the realities of hell and more importantly, focus on how we should respond. What do we do with this understanding of hell? If you remember, this whole discussion, the whole subject of hell came up because of the topic of the wrath of God. And that came up because uh, as we began our study in the book of the prophet Nahum, Nahum was speaking an oracle of judgment against Assyria because in the quest uh, for her to gain an empire, she had brutalized and cruelly tortured and sadistically harmed millions of people. And so Nahum, who doesn't mince with words, as he opened up his book or prophecy, he began with how God felt about Assyria's sin. He said these words, A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken up by him. These opening verses, Nahum comes out of the chute confronting Assyria, confronting us with the wrath of God against sin. The ultimate expression of that wrath, as we introduced, talked about last week, is God's judgment against sin and hell. Last week we saw that hell is a real place, that people suffer conscious, unending, unbearable torment from which there is no relief at all, ever. And that's what makes hell so hard to think about. I mean, it's, it's hard to get our minds and hearts around that, isn't it? Just that thought. I know last week I was very sobered, and again this week in considering this, that, you know, I just thought, you know what, it'd be so much easier to just move on to the next prophet. You know what? Nothing to see here, folks. We've seen enough. Let's let's move on. Habakkuk, uh, Zechariah, they all have more cheery messages. <laughs> but, beloved, we need to know what hell is, and we need to know what it is clearly. And more importantly, we need to know how to respond to it. What do we do with this? Because God doesn't reveal things about himself or his world or his universe without expecting us to do something about it. He doesn't just give us information. The Bible isn't for informational purposes only. No, God expects us to do something with it. So what do we do with the reality of hell? How do we apply it? As Christians, how do we apply it? Well, let's begin by turning to 2 Thessalonians 1. 2 Thessalonians 1. This text is probably the most direct and instructive of passages on hell in the New Testament. Paul wrote this second letter to the church at Thessalonica, probably not long after his first one. And he began his second letter by expressing his joy at their growing faith. He said in verse 4 of chapter 1, We ourselves proudly speak of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Paul says here he opens his letter by expressing his encouragement at their faith. And he talks about the fact that he's especially encouraged because they're growing in their faith even in the midst of affliction, even in the midst of persecution. For you see, uh, the those who were against the gospel, the enemies of the gospel, they had run Paul out of town, out of Thessalonica. Acts 17 describes these events. And then, apparently, that persecution continued. Even though Paul was gone, there were still believers there. And many people didn't like that. And so these Thessalonians suffered for their faith in Christ. And Paul encourages them in verse 5, telling them that their perseverance, their suffering, this persecution, showed that they were worthy of Christ. And then he says this in verse 6. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And so here we see Paul encourages them and he encourages them by telling them that those who've been afflicting them, God would repay. And even though we don't see the word hell here in these verses that I read from 2 Thessalonians, we know that it is hell of which he speaks because he uses that phrase eternal destruction. 
And then he also talks about this in the context of Jesus Christ and his second coming. And that will be a time of judgment, as we learn in Revelation. And notice there, how did he describe what God would do to the afflictors? What does he say there in verse 6? That God will what? Repay. God will repay. And then in verse 8 he says, God will deal out retribution. That word retribution means to avenge. It means to pay back. It's this idea that when Jesus returns, he will avenge all wrongs that have been done against himself and all wrongs that have been committed against his people. He will pay back their evil. Isaiah 66, 15 says the Lord is an avenger. Romans 12, 19 says, leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Or again, Nahum's opening line in his prophecy where he said, a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. God will avenge is the point. And remember, God's vengeance is not like our human vengeance. It's not this, you hurt me, so I'm going to get you. No, with God, there's no malice. His vengeance, his avenging is his balancing the scales of justice. That's why Paul begins verse 6. Notice there, he started with, it is only just for God to repay. Just as God did with the Assyrians, he would now repay those afflicting the Thessalonians with affliction. And Paul expands the scope in verse 8 when he says that God would deal out retribution to all who've sinned against God, to all who don't know Him, to those who did not submit to Christ as Lord in His gospel. And notice also that phrase, the beginning of verse 9, he says there, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. That word penalty has the same Greek root as retribution in verse 8 and just in verse 6 and the word righteous in verse 5. It's this idea of a a just punishment, a, a right judgment. And so putting these ideas together he's got these words here repay retribution vengeance penalty paul is saying to us something here about hell and what he's telling us is that hell is punitive not corrective what he's saying here is that it is a place of punishment not rehabilitation jesus affirmed this in matthew 25:46 when he said that hell is a place of eternal punishment For you see, hell is not a prison, it is a coffin. There are no second chances. There's no reduced sentence for good behavior. There's no release for time served. There's nothing you can do, nothing anyone can do to shorten your term. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. And it is a final judgment. Jesus alludes to this in Luke 13, 24, when he said this, Strive to enter the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say to him, We ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, you evildoers. In that place, Jesus then said, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus is here speaking through that parable of the finality of hell. And that though the people would be pounding on the door and pounding on the door to come in, the door stays locked. Those imprisoned in hell They're never going to hear the the jingling keys of freedom outside the door. They'll never hear the words, you're free to go now. Every cry for mercy will fall on deaf ears and hell will be full of the sound of pounding prison doors echoing. Hell's punishment is final. And that finality is reinforced in verse 9 with the words Paul uses there. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. Again, hell is forever, forever. And that sobering truth cannot be stressed enough for no matter how terrible hell is, you know, it could be endured if you knew there was an end to it. There would still be hope if you knew one day that door is going to open and I'm out of here. But brothers and sisters, there are no clocks in hell. There's no calendars. 
It's a place of eternal destruction. And remember, that word destruction here doesn't mean ceasing to exist. The word carries the idea of being in a constant state of ruin. It's forever being destroyed, but never completely destroyed. It is dying, but never dead. And so God's vengeance, Paul describes here, will be meted out in an everlasting state of ruin and suffering. And that idea we see back in verse 6, when Paul uses the word, he says, God will repay those afflicting you with what? With affliction. With suffering. That word means to, uh, to press, to squash, to hem in. And when it's used figuratively, it has the idea of oppression, of affliction, of causing to be troubled. Revelation 14.9 says, The smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. Revelation 20, verse 10, describes hell as a place where they, those in it, will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. And Jesus described hell in Matthew 13.40 as a place of a furnace, a furnace of fire, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And if all that weren't bad enough, notice in verse 9 what Paul says further about it. He says, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. And then what does he say next? Away from the presence or literally the face of the Lord and from the glory of his power. He's speaking there, not of physical proximity, but of relationship. If you remember back in Matthew 7, verse 23, when Jesus used those words, I never knew you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Do you remember when he said that in the Sermon on the Mount? In effect, he was saying, I have no relationship with you. That parable I read a moment ago from Luke 13, Jesus said to those knocking at the door, I tell you, I don't even know, I don't know where you're from. Depart from me. Now, Jesus, of course, knows where we are from. He made us. What's he saying there? I I, I don't know you. We have no relationship. Why should I open the door? And so this eternal destruction is really a completely opposite to eternal life. For eternal life is this blissful and sweet and ongoing and enjoyable fellowship with God, a nearness to Him, a closeness, enjoying His blessing, loving Him and being loved by Him. That's what eternal life is, to know Him and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. But eternal destruction is completely the opposite because any hope of a relationship with God at all is gone the opposite of eternal life for rather than being near to god there is distance from him rather than being given his blessing it's receiving his cursing rather than gaining his favor it's his wrath rather than experiencing god's love in hell it is experiencing his hate and that's the real torment of it it's not just on the outside but on the inside the not the pain of of the flame around you that's Worse, it's the pain of rejection because hell is more than the agony of the body. It's also a greater agony of the heart. And why is that such agony, that separation? It's because we've been created to be relational beings, right? Right? Most of us anyway. I'm an engineer, so I understand there is a certain class of us that uh, we're okay with a computer or something. But no, we, we are built, we are made for relationship. In fact, remember back in the garden... There was a problem, wasn't there? Adam was created. He looks around and... I'm alone, right? You remember that? And so God did a little surgical procedure on him, created Eve. And boy, you couldn't contain Adam after that. There she is, look at her! Yes, yes, right? He was so excited. He was so excited. Saw Leah Hughes' wedding yesterday uh, uh, she got married and as jack was just getting ready to pronounce him man and wife he paused you know and and so they're sitting there waiting and then you can see leah going like this and it was right she's excited why she has found a companion for life someone that she could share life with communicate with have fellowship with to love and be loved but in hell there's none of that No community, no fellowship, no camaraderie, no friendship. There's no enjoyment of shared experiences. It's a place of total loneliness. Billy Graham once said, hell is the loneliest place in the universe. 
Jesus described it as a place of outer darkness. And the picture there was of abandonment. And he said there'd be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Gnashing because of the physical pain. Weeping because of the loneliness. And that eternal separation, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1.9, is not only away from the presence of the Lord, but also from the glory of His power. That's a description of His majesty, His, his splendor, His wonder, His beauty. His grandeur. In hell there will be no experience of that. The creator of the universe. The amazing, all-powerful and wonderful God who can do anything. The, the painter of the skies and of the mountains. The one who made us in His image. There will be no experience of that at all. The glories of Christ will be hidden. And so here in Second Thessalonians 1, we have yet another passage that describes graphically Hell is a real place of eternal and conscious torment, a place of suffering, of terrible agony to both body and soul. No relief, no end, and no friend. No blessings of God, no purpose, no joy, no beauty, and absolutely no hope. In Dante's Inferno, He had a sign above hell's gate that reads, Abandon all hope, you who enter here. For hell is a very somber thing to think about. The realities of hell, I I mean, I I just, I can't get my mind around it. I can't fathom the horrors. I mean, there are really, honestly, no words that could really adequately describe what it's truly like. Hell is not a fantasy, it's not an imagination, it's not make believe. And it's definitely not something to be singing about. It's real. And I know I keep repeating myself and saying it's real, but it's real. Beloved, it's real. And it's not just where Satan and demons will go. Notice in 2 Thessalonians 1.8, he says it, it will be a place for all who have no relationship with God, for any who have rejected the gospel and not submitted to the lordship of Christ. And so what do we do with this? How do we respond to these truths about hell? In his book, Erasing Hell, Francis Chan said this, The the thought of hell is paralyzing for most people, which is why we often ignore its existence, at least in practice. After all, how can we possibly carry on with life if we're constantly mindful of a fiery place of torment? Yet that's the whole point, he says. We shouldn't just go on with life as usual. A sense of urgency over the reality of hell should recharge our passion for the gospel. We should not just try to cope with hell, but be compelled to live differently in light of it. End quote. And that's the question then. How do we live differently in light of it? Well, this morning I'd like us to consider two responses. Knowing the realities of hell should drive us to implore and should drive us to adore. What I mean by that, it should drive us to win souls and also to worship Christ. That's what knowing about hell should do. First, hell should move us to implore. And you know, the first person we need to implore is ourselves. The first soul you should seek to win should be your own. Your own heart is a mission field. And that may sound a little odd to say, but I am simply amazed at how little attention people give to the condition of their own souls. I quoted earlier from Matthew seven twenty three, where Jesus said, I never knew you, depart from me. Do you know who he was speaking to there? Was it a group of atheists? Is it a bunch of agnostics who were you know, still thinking about whether or not he existed? Was it a group of people from another religion that he was speaking to that he said depart? Well, a few verses earlier, listen to what Jesus says leading up to that statement, I never knew you. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will declare to them, Jesus said, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So to whom is Jesus speaking there? Those who think they know him. 
Those who call him Lord. Those who declare all the things they, they had done in his name. Those who said, we faithfully have served you. Lord, Lord, you know, he's speaking here to Christians or at least those who thought they were. But how is that? How is it that somebody could read the Bible, pray to God, spend time going to church, attending Bible studies? How is it that somebody could do all of that, have their children grow up in church and then stand before Christ thinking they were going to heaven and have Christ say to them, get out, I never knew you. We have no relationship. How does a person get to that place? They didn't give heed to their own souls. They mistook churchianity for Christianity. They thought that works for Christ was the same as worship of Christ. They gave no attention to the sin, the ongoing sin in their life. There was no true repentance. And so that was showing all along that the Holy Spirit did not reside in them. Because didn't, didn't Jesus often use this expression, a tree is known by its fruit? Remember that? He said that many times or something like it. When is the last time that you did a fruit inspection of your own heart? Do you see a pattern of obedience there in your life? Do you see a, a love for Jesus? And listen, a, a love that expresses itself by a passionate pursuit of holiness. Do you desire to spend time with the Lord? And with his people, do you see growth in Christ in your life? Could you say you're more like Jesus today than, say, a year ago? And you see that we're talking about the horrors of hell because it's meant to get us asking ourselves those very questions. That's one of the intent is so that we would implore ourselves, not so that we would foster this continual doubt about our salvation and not so that we would think uh, we have a works based mentality about Christianity. No, Jesus chose this analogy of a fruit tree, a tree bearing fruit, very carefully. Because his point is that if a tree is bearing fruit, it's merely showing what kind of tree it is, right? You don't bear fruit in order to be a fruit tree. You bear fruit because you are a fruit tree. And that's why Jesus said, examine your life. See if there's fruit there. That'll show if you're really a tree. And if you don't see fruit, that's pause to think. And to ask yourself the question, if I know Christ, 1 John 3, 9 says, No one who is born of God practices sin because God's seed abides in him. He cannot sin because he's born of God. That's simply another way to say fruit, uh, fruit will indicate change, that the presence of God will be evident. His seed is in you, and so people will see that. You will see that. After describing the qualities of a true follower of Christ, Peter said in 2 Peter 1, 10, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. So, beloved, again, I would ask, how diligent are you to make certain of the condition of your soul? How often do you implore your own soul? And secondly, how often do you implore the souls of others? The reality of hell, as Francis Chan talked about, should motivate us and drive us and impassion us to consider the souls of others and implore them. For knowing the truth about hell, listen, beloved, knowing the truth about hell should cultivate in in us not a callousness, but a compassion. Not a, a pride saying, oh, I'm in, but rather a humility saying, I don't deserve to be there. It should cultivate in us not a feeling of moral superiority over other people, but a true empathy that's concerned for their condition of their souls, their relationship to Christ. I love how Charles Spurgeon put this so passionately. He said, oh, my brothers and sisters in Christ. I wish I could preach like him. Oh, my brothers and sisters in Christ. If sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our own bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with their arms around their knees, imploring them to stay and not madly to destroy themselves. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Penn Gillette of Penn and Teller. Heard of those guys, right? He is a very strong, self-avowed, devout atheist. 
But about five years ago, he posted this interesting video. Some of you may have, have seen it. In this video, he, he tells of a, of a man who, after one of his shows, came up to him. Is John Rotuno in this service? John would love this story because he came up to him and handed him a Gideon's Bible. And he started to share with this, with Penn. And, uh, you know, it was interesting. Penn was really affected by that guy because the guy came and he's very genuine and showed a real concern. Even though Penn, you know, said, I don't believe any of this. But this guy, and so he sat down after the show and he, he did this video and, and he made this profound statement especially considering he was an atheist. He said this, If you believe there's a heaven and a hell, the pe- and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and then not tell them that? It's convicting words from a man who doesn't even believe in God. At least not yet, maybe. We must think of the awfulness of hell so that if there is in our hearts any apathy or any lack of care or fear of rejection or selfishness or or laziness, that knowing how terrible hell is would root those things up out of our heart. It will compel us to, to warn. We can't shy away from the subject of hell. The need... For the gospel is great and the need to speak of sin is great. We need to be proclaiming that there's a deliverer. That there is a real hell, but there is someone who's experienced it so that you and I wouldn't have to. And I'm haunted still by the many people in my life that I did not tell them about hell or about sin or about our lovely Savior. I so often let the fear of man hold my tongue. Many times I let the fear of rejection restrain my lips. And I so frequently let the fear of not knowing, you know, they might ask a question I can't answer. And I let that fear bridle my mouth. And I would ask you, how about you? Do you find it hard? I do. And before looking at the second response to the realities of hell, I I thought it would be good for us to just stop here a minute and pray. To pray for a couple people in your life that God would move you to pray for their salvation and make a plan to reach out to them. So I want to give you a moment. Just pray on your own to the Lord. Ask Him to to do that work in your own heart. Reveal that to you. Lord, forgive me for the silence so many times when I should have spoken. And I pray, Lord, that you would bring to each of our minds, Lord, those you would have us reach out to in compassion, Lord, but in truth. And Father, we would, Lord, make a plan even this week to be praying for them and to find a way to open the door. Lord, we know your servant Paul, as he had asked in the proclaiming of your gospel, how he had asked for prayer, for boldness. Lord, we ask the same thing. Give us boldness, Lord. Give us compassion and give us wisdom and grace. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so make it your mission this week to keep praying for those folks. You can write their names down remind you and look for a window of opportunity. God will give it. He likes opening windows. And as Paul said in Ephesians 6.19, praying for boldness, let us be praying for one another in this so that we are committed as a, as a church to be evangelists. Amen? Now the sobering realities of hell should not only cause us to implore, but also to adore, to worship Christ. And I mean, I think about, okay, well, what in the world does knowing about hell and a place of conscious eternal torment and unending suffering, how is that going to uh, motivate my worship of Jesus? How are those connected? 
Well, really, to understand the wonders of the cross, we need to understand the horrors of hell. And I think the church has developed what I'll call spiritual cataracts over what really the cross is all about. Because we spend so little time talking about hell or thinking about it or teaching on it, we often ignore it, when we really don't understand what that symbol up on the wall really means. And what Jesus, who hung on something like that, really experienced. And so we talk about hell not only to be motivated to implore, we talk about it so that we'll be motivated to adore. To adore our Lord. You know, we know much about, at least from what we read, the physical pain that Jesus endured, the terrible sting of those thorns that were pressed on his skull and his flesh and bones exposed on his back from the beating, the flogging that he experienced. We may understand a little bit of what it's like to be betrayed as uh, Judas betrayed him and as his disciples ran off in fear, abandoned him. We might understand a little bit what it's like to be unjustly accused. And we know a little bit about the execution itself. Crucifixion, right? One of the most horrific forms of execution ever devised by human beings. We'd understand, you know, hanging upon a cross by nails in your flesh and and your back, which is exposed, the raw nerves rubbing against that wood, having difficulty breathing, your muscles cramping up because... You're in the same position, no relief at all. You know, it's hard to think of Jesus suffering in this way. I watched the the film The Passion once, and it so affected me. I'm afraid to watch it again. It it was just because that really happened to our Lord, and it's hard to watch that. But you know what? That wasn't the worst of it. Not to belittle that physical pain, but it was a pinprick compared to what Christ suffered on that cross. It was about nine in the morning when the nails went through his wrists and his ankles. About nine o'clock when they dropped the cross into the ground and the splinters drove right into his bones. He hung there about three hours and then at noon darkness covered the sky. Perhaps covered the earth, but definitely covered Jerusalem Judah, that darkness being a symbol of God's judgment. We've read often in the prophets about that, that when God judges a people, there's this picture of darkness. Jesus often spoke of hell as outer darkness. And so as Christ hung on the cross and the darkness came across the land, we see this clear symbol of God's judgment. And the question is, judgment for what? And judgment against whom? Was it against those who had wrongly convicted and blasphemed and beaten and nailed Jesus to that cross? The worst sin in history, by the way. Was God condemning them when the sun failed that Friday at noon? Well, it wasn't until about three hours later that we find out who that darkness was directed towards when Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in those words, we are given a glimpse of what Jesus went through. For you see, God did not blacken the sky that day because of the people. He blackened it because Jesus. His judgment was against His own son, because in that one sentence, those few words that he uttered upon the cross, we were given this glimpse into what Jesus really experienced, what he really went through when he hung upon that tree. And it was more than just his body being racked by horrible pain. And it was horrible. But if that were all it is, Jesus could have borne that. Many people in history have have actually suffered worse physically. But Jesus' scream shows that he was enduring much more than physical pain. He was bearing the weight for our sin. He was experiencing the full fury of God's wrath. Hell had been unleashed upon him. And he went through all of this alone. Totally alone. S. Lewis Johnson noted that in the 21 prayers of Jesus recorded in the New Testament, Jesus always calls God my Father or Father 
except for one time. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the only time he could not say, Father. Jesus was quoting there the first words from Psalm 22, and there's much to be said regarding that connection. But I think he only quoted that first line in particular because that was the main thrust of what he was experiencing. He was experiencing being abandoned by the Father. That perfect and sweet, unhindered fellowship within the Godhead experienced through all eternity, that unending unity was broken. Jesus experienced in that moment the separation that is hell. Some may say, well, yeah, but that that sounds bad, but, but that isn't hell. Really? You know, we have no clue. We have no idea, not even a a hint, really, of what that experience was like. Relational separation within the Trinity. Now, this is not to say that Jesus uh, no longer was God. His form, his essence, his nature did not change, but his fellowship did. His fellowship with the Father. I mean, think, think about this with me for a minute. You know, even on a human level, the pain of separation is greater the closer we are to that person, right? I mean, if you might, you might have met somebody today in the greeting time, and you got to know a little bit, maybe shook hands, talked a little bit, and then you said goodbye, or, but you know, you're not going to miss them this week, right? You're not going to long to see them till next week, right? You just met them. You may have a close friend, perhaps, that moves away, and there may even be a tear shed some sorrow at their leaving, some hurt you'll feel for a time, but, but life goes on. Ah, but then there's the pain of separation from someone in your family. That will hurt a little more. There's even the worst pain of losing a relative or a parent or a sibling. That pain does not heal quickly. And then the worst pain of all, the deep pain of losing your spouse or your child. That doesn't go away. It really never heals. You see, the the closer you are to somebody, the more you love them, the greater the pain of separation. So let me ask you this. What would the pain be like for the Son of God to be separate from the Father? The most intimate, closest, personal relationship in the universe. By far. Infinite. We can't fathom that. We dare not even try to fathom that. But there Christ hung forsaken. Now, if it was simply forsaken of men, he could have borne that. But he was forsaken of his father. The question is, why? Why was he forsaken? Simple answer. He stood in your place. The Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Christ died for all sins once for all, the just for the unjust. The Son of Man came to give his life for a ransom for many. First Peter says he bore our sins in his body on the cross. And so... If you think about it, do you realize what that means, that He bore your sins? When the Father looked at Jesus, He was looking at your sin. If you've placed your trust in Him, if you're His child, Jesus took upon Himself every single one of your sins. Every one of them that you have committed and will commit. Because all sin must be paid for. Right? He took your sins and mine upon himself, and then the Father treated Jesus as if it was you and me. Rebels. He looked at Jesus as if he had committed all of your sins. And all of us have sinned. And when the Father placed your sin on his Son, he could no longer bear to look at him. And so that fellowship, that relationship is broken. Galatians 3.10 says that we are all under the curse of the law 
for we have all sinned. All of us have sinned, and some of us are really good at it. But we've all sinned. But verse 13 says this, But Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. That's unbelievable. Do you know what it means to be cursed by God? You know what a curse is? That's, that's condemnation. That's damnation. That's being one who God sees as an enemy, in a sense. Jesus became the condemned one. He became the punished one. He became the one that suffered the damnation of hell in your place. That's what it means to be a curse. Jesus, a curse. You can't even, those two words in the same sentence just don't, don't seem right. But there it is in Galatians 3.13. He became a curse. Jesus bore the full fury of hell for your sin and for mine. If you're his. And think about that a minute. Again, I want you to just stop and consider. You know, we've been talking about the horrors of hell, the, the conscious, eternal, unending torment, the loneliness, the suffering, the eternal separation from God. Do you realize something? We've been dwelling on this primarily so that you and I would understand what Jesus actually suffered. He suffered that. He had to. If he was to be your substitute, he had to go through hell for you. And more. Because you being in hell... It never ends, right? That means the sin's never ultimately paid for. So Jesus had to experience worse than an eternity in hell in order to pay for sin. And he suffered not just your hell. He suffered the hell of every believer in this room. And not just in this room, but every believer on this planet. And not just in our time, but in all history. Think about that. A multiple, countless number of eternities in hell. I, it, I can't, again, I'm, it's beyond my ability to even comprehend this. But some may say, well, well, hold on, hold on. Jesus was hanging on the cross for what, six hours? Part of a day? How could that be equivalent to multiple eternities in hell? Well, you would have to be the perfect and eternal and almighty and incomparable Son of God to understand what separation from the Father is like. You would have to be the spotless and holy and pure and unblemished God of creation to know what having our filthy, wicked sin poured on Him feels like. You would have to be infinite to know what infinite wrath is like. And so we'll never understand it. It would be, and this is a poor analogy, but it would be like trying to explain to a two-year-old what it feels like to lose a child. Maybe a little bit by analogy or something they could gain understanding a little bit, but ultimately they would never know the depth of pain it's like to, to lose your child. They'd never really understand that. And similarly, we, we can only gain a glimpse of what Christ suffered because we know a little of what hell is like. And to say Jesus went through hell for you would just not be enough, for he went through more than that because your sin is paid in full if you've come to him in faith. Your sin has been paid in full. No amens on that at all? Jesus paid it all. Your sins are forgiven. That's why Paul could say in Romans 8, 1, there is now, therefore, no condemnation, no curse for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thank you. <laughs> Jesus took it for us. No condemnation, no judgment, no wrath, no anger, no hell. Praise Jesus for that. Praise him. My debt is paid in full. <laughs> Nahum asked the question, who can stand before God's fury? 
Who can endure the burning of his anger? Today we've seen the answer. There is one who can, and he did. I heard the story of a 19th century missionary, uh, uh, Henry Maybe. He was talking about a time he was preaching the gospel to a tribal people who were hearing it for the first time. He told them of God and, and of sin. He unfolded the redemptive plan of God in the pages of Scripture. And he spoke, he talked about the cross, the resurrection, all these glories. And then when he finished, the chief of the tribe said, tell it again. He wanted to hear that story again. And so... Henry described it again. He actually spent more time, gave more detail. And then the second time when he got to the story of the cross, the tribal chief stood up and he interrupted and says, Oh, stop, stop, hold on, hold on. Take Jesus down from that cross. Take him down, I say, for Jesus should not be on that cross. I should be. You should be up there. I should be up there. Right? We should be in hell. We all deserve it. But he bore our sins in his body on the cross so that you might die to sin and live to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, it is... I don't know how to respond, God. And I've been studying and thinking about this message all week. Lord, to fathom what you experienced, we just, what can we say? Praise you. You are worthy of our praise. Just as the beings declared in Revelation that we heard from earlier, holy, 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 and worthy is the Lamb. Lord, we are so grateful. You are so worthy. We thank you. Lord, may you cause us as we think about hell, not to put it out of our minds, but cause it, Lord, to move in us to be those who implore and those who adore. and That we, God, would be used by you. We know that you desire none to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Lord, use us in that we pray, and I again, Lord, would ask if there are any here, Father, that your wrath abides on them in this moment because they have not turned from their sin to put their trust in our Savior. That you would move in their hearts even now. That you would help them to see the realities of your judgment and the beauty of your Savior. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.